0: You know, some teachers teach you things and they don't even intend to or they're not even aware that they're doing it. It just happens. And uh, that happened for me in a sixth grade experience. I was in sixth grade and I just have trouble, especially in grade school, sitting quietly while someone teaches. It just was not kind of my forte. And I had gotten in trouble again one of these times. And to my chagrin, it was probably, I think it was the middle of the week or something like that. And the teacher moved my desk to the back this is when i was going to new hope grade school from about third to sixth grade move my desk to the back but the bad part was he put me by the doorway and by a window that you could look out in the hallway and so i i couldn't disturb the students up here and and that was shameful enough to be separated in that way but what was worse was I didn't realize that the next Monday when that rolled around, I thought, you know, he'd probably put me back with everyone else, and he didn't. And Tuesday night, the next night, he had made us aware that Tuesday that it was teacher conference night. And I'm thinking he's going to move me back up, and he doesn't move me up. And all I can think of is that my mom is going to come, because she's the one who usually came to the conferences, and see where my desk is. And I knew that's not a good thing. So I go home that night, and I'm at dinner, and I'm racking my brain to think what I can do. And I say, you know, Mom, you know, you do this teacher conference thing at least every year, two times a year, and you always know what you're going to get. You're always going to hear from the teacher that I, you know, because I get them on my report cards. I get I, which is insufficient, for self-control. And I get an I minus. In fact, I actually got an I minus minus once on my penmanship. I said, so... They're going to probably tell you the same thing again. That hasn't changed. I'm good on the other subjects, but, you know, so I was just wondering, since we do this every year, this is probably, you know, how about if we go shopping? Yeah, you're laughing. But it, there was a store, it's kind of new, called Target. And I said, Mom, let's go to Target. And guess what? She said, yes. I had never enjoyed shopping so much in my life. I was an angel the whole night. It wasn't until but a few years ago that I told my mom about what really happened and why we went shopping. And she remembers it too, clearly. I say that because one of the things that this teacher taught me intentionally, unintentionally, was um, shopping's not such a bad thing at times. In fact, he probably prepared me for a wife and two daughters who like to shop and then I will you know tag along on vacations or things like that but what i want to share with you is a teacher who was incredibly intentional about everything he taught jesus and in many translations you'll read in the bible they'll say teacher or good teacher you'll hear that as you read through the scripture if you get some older translations they'll say rabbi which is really what he was was a rabbi rabbis in that day didn't teach in a classroom like this with desks and students sitting around for a few hours and then they would go home. Rabbis in that day would call a group of people around him disciples, learners, followers. And the whole purpose of it is that they would live, in a sense, with him and they would seek to do everything he did. It wasn't just about learning what he knew, some concepts. It was that they would actually learn what he knew, and actually do what he did so that someday they would live like he lived. So that as they followed this teacher, this rabbi in that culture, it was an exciting thing if a rabbi who somehow was given that term where people acknowledged that he was one who had spiritual insights like no other. They would come to a place where they would be recognized and they would start teaching in synagogues. And as they begin to teach, they would begin to have people who wanted to follow. And in in Matthew 10, when we come to Matthew 10, you get this interesting section of Scripture, really just about a chapter, where Jesus gives some basic instructions to his followers. And chapter 10 starts out with Him calling some of these people around Him. He has been teaching, and they've heard Him, and some have come around Him. And now at this point in chapter 10, the first verses or so, He calls to Himself twelve distinct followers And what's unusual about these followers, in that day, a rabbi would seek to get the cream of the crop, the best of the best. He would call around him the people that excelled, who were doing well in the rabbinical schools that were being taught in. But not this Jesus. This teacher was different. For some reason, he looked out and he started calling fishermen. The guys who weren't able to make it to that high level of the Harvard of their day. He called out people who weren't even looked upon as being good people. He called despised people like tax collectors. He called people like you and me to become followers. So as we move to chapter 10, as we've been in this now for the last couple of weeks, and we kind of finish this chapter today, is really a chapter about Jesus calling followers like you and me And then giving them basic instructions on how to follow him. And so last week, when we looked at this chapter, we said that verses 24 and 25 were a transitional verse, because what he said just prior to this, he gives some basic instructions and he says, this is the kind of mission I want you to be on in life. Look for those who are worthy by the word worthy means they are the ones who welcome and receive the message of the gospel of grace. There will be people when they hear about God's love and the fact that they who have felt so far away from and they feel there's no way that this God would love them when they hear it, it's like cold water. They they're parched they're so thirsty for it that they welcome that message and they receive it but then he said there will be people and you begin to teach them and you begin to talk about this god this god of grace this god who comes in and moves into their life not on the basis of anything they've done in fact the love is in him and the grace is in who he is it's not in what they've done there will be people who out of their own spiritual sense of pride Usually in his day, church people, Pharisees and scribes, who are standing on their own sense of worth, their own sense of goodness before God. They've done everything. And when they hear that this God has come and will accept these people who don't feel acceptable, they're going to get angry and they'll reject you. And he says, so expect suffering because just like the teacher, the student is no better. That's what verse 24 says. A student is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the student to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. Catch this. If the head of the house has been called Beelzebub, how much more the members, the servants in that household? Beelzebub, or translated Beelzebul, or Bezebul, different translations, really means similar. It means Lord of the Flies. There was, in a sense, in that day, they said that there was the prince of demons, Beelzebub, and this Beelzebub was the Lord over these demonic things like flies. And just like flies, they would see these flies that would, that would, in a hot day, would be swarming around dung and everything rotten and trashy. So this demonic Beelzebub controlled these demonic spirits. And here are these people who are rejecting Jesus, the teacher, and he's saying to them, They call me... Lord of the flies, Beelzebub. Would you expect to be called anything less? In a sense, the real head of the household, Jesus, is being willfully attributed to the head of the household over demonic spirits and evil. And you think about it it's not just rejection. This accusation and charge is shockingly vile. The Messiah himself is rejected as Satan. And it's not just a rejection of Jesus. If we go through Matthew, you'll find it's Jesus will even say it's not just a rejection of me. It's the rejection of the anointing, the spirit of God upon me. And that's critically important to think about for a second. Because Jesus is saying to his disciples, you students, if they called me Beelzebub and they reject my anointing. Be prepared that when you walk in the anointing of the Holy Spirit, they're not just rejecting you, they're rejecting something far greater. I just say that as a caution. In God's anointing, He said, be careful. Every move of God, you look at it throughout history, there is rejection, not just of the move, but of the Spirit that's in the move. So Jesus, incredibly, really, really good teacher, intentionally sits down with his disciples at this point. And beginning with verse 26, after he makes a statement, so as the teacher, the student goes, he goes on and makes a statement and intentionally wants them to know that there will be people who are going to reject them. You will move throughout life into circumstances where you will be afraid. You will be moved to fear. And he gives three instructions. He says, don't fear because God loves you. And then he says, don't be confused because when you move into fear, it's easily become confused because God is the source of your life. And then he says, don't forget as as you push through this in trust, Don't forget that God will reward you. That's really what these verses are. If you look at chapter 26, verse uh, 42. Let's begin at 26, verse 31. And this is what I call the foundational teaching of Jesus here. And you need to note that three times Jesus says this. And when Jesus says something three times, it's an emphasis. It means something very important. He says, don't fear. So do not be afraid of them. There is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. When I tell you in the dark, speak in the daylight, what is whispered in your ear, proclaim from the roofs, do not be afraid, mark that again, of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from the will of your Father. And even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So mark this again. So do not be afraid. Don't be afraid. You're worth more. Than many sparrows. You see, in the light of the fact that the followers of Jesus should expect to suffer and face persecution, Jesus finds it necessary to intentionally instruct his followers, you and me, how to handle fear. To recognize the fact fear is going to come. Just as you can expect suffering, expect when that circumstances are negative in, in, in your life. Maybe trials come to your life or you are feeling people rejecting you or you're feeling abandoned or you're feeling lost or whatever those things are. What it does, it cuts to your core and your core, you become afraid. And I got to tell you, when you're in those afraid places, it's really easy to be attacked. And so if you look at verse 26 and 27, Jesus says, don't be afraid. And he gives us reminder. He says, the seed of truth that I planted in you at some point is going to emerge in full flower. It will be revealed, fully disclosed, unhidden. That's why he says there is nothing that will be not concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. And then you, you have to understand, this. he says, what I tell you in the dark, speak in the daylight, what is whispered in your ear, proclaim from the rooftops. This is not a verse about God saying that He's going to expose what's been hidden in your heart. He's not, it's not a verse that says, well, "Well, be careful what you think, because what you think will someday be made known to everybody. That's not what he's saying here. He is making it very clear. He's saying what has, been, what has been hidden, what has been spoken to you as the twelve, you disciples, you need to realize that what has been said in private, Someday these truths that you have been told Will be made wide, openly known to all The kingdom of God is like a seed It will grow, it will become visible It will be seen and heard by all At some point it will bear fruit And all will see it There is this sense that he's saying That Jesus spoke in parables But he's telling his disciples There will be a day where you will speak it plainly For all to hear Jesus told them things in secret They would someday boldly proclaim it openly to all Jesus pulled them aside after he would share a teaching and he would explain to them what the others didn't understand because there were times he needed to tell them about suffering, about things that are going to happen. And he couldn't share those things openly because it would put his own life at risk. He had a mission to carry out. So he had to be very careful. So he would tell in secret. He would whisper it in their ears and the things whispered in his ears. He said, Sunday, when you move to the place where you're going to ministry and when you move out of just following me into following me more publicly in a ministry, you will begin to declare these things so. Boldly, And when you do begin to declare them, you can expect that you will suffer for that. That's what he's saying. So basically, at some point, as the truth begins to emerge, and when it does, and you expect persecution, he says, I don't want you to live in fear. Do you know that God does not want us to live in the fear? He does not want us to live in fear. He does not want us to be afraid of anyone. That's why verse 28, Jesus reiterates these words. He says, never let yourself be controlled by fear. A second time, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. You will go out and you'll be explaining these things. You'll be declaring these things. And there'll be people who will stand against it. And you have to understand that when they do, you need to know that you will feel fear. But don't allow fear to grab hold of you. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, he says, be afraid of the one who can destroy both the soul and body in hell. Now, you have to understand, Jesus is doing something interesting here. He's using what psychologists call rational emotive behavior therapy. Anybody remember that when you were in school? When I was back in school, it's called rational emotive therapy. Now they add the word behavior. Because they're clear on this fact. That your belief will have an impact on both your emotions which will affect your behavior. And so that's why it's rational. Jesus is basically calling to think for a second and to understand something that is really true here. And he says, I want you to understand this because what you believe and what you understand to be true will actually impact your attitudes and your actions. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to ask this question. In a sense... This rational, emotive behavior, one of the things that they teach you in this, in this therapy is they ask you to, 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 to say, what is your worst fear? That's one of the things they do. Let's get rational about it so that it can then change the way you, you feel, so then how you act. I was um, this past Thursday night back in Chicago. I took a flight in the afternoon to get there for a um, funeral for a dear college professor of mine, and a bunch of us guys were together who were close to him. And uh, it was fun to be with him. And it kind of reminded me of this whole rational emotive behavior therapy because when we learned it, we used it on one another in school. We we would say things like this when we were at that dating age and we wanted to date someone we really liked and we were afraid to make the phone call some cases. We would say to the person, come on, so what's your greatest fear? And you make the call, what's the worst that can happen? Well, she could say No. Okay, and what will happen then? I'll die. No, you know, that can happen, right? So you would play out what's your worst fear. That's what Jesus is actually doing here. He says, let's get the thing out on the table. Let's get the worst fear there. He says, don't be afraid, so let's do this. Name the worst that can happen. The worst that can happen is death, physical death. In some cases, rejection. In some cases, a feeling of abandonment. In some cases, a sense of loss. Whatever it is, Jesus says, it isn't the worst. There is something worse. So don't be afraid. Because the most they can do is kill the body. But they can't touch your spirit. The worst that can happen is something physical. But your spirit and soul cannot be touched. And so that's why he goes on and he says, don't be afraid of those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather be afraid of the one who can destroy both what the soul and the body in hell. He's the one you should really fear. If you want to talk about who, what's the worst fear, fear the one who holds your eternal destiny. Fear the one that not only has your physical body in his hand, but also has your spirit and soul. But you need to realize this. If you fear the one who holds your eternal destiny, the one who holds your physical body and also holds your soul and spirit, you have nothing to fear. You have nothing to fear because if you have this place in your heart where you're humbly, respectfully in this position of 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 wanting to follow and trust and open yourself up to this love of God, then you can know that he loves you and he will have your best in mind. And so in a sense, he says "And if you fear him, you have nothing to fear because he's madly in love with you. He will care for you. He will provide for you. He will always be with you. In a sense, fear God, and you do not need to fear anyone else. Anyone. Proverbs states it this way, the beginning of wisdom. If you want to know the first step into wisdom, it's the fear of God. Because when you come to that place where you just say, God, here's my life. Respectfully, I just lay it before you. This single heart posture opens the door to all wisdom. But Jesus doesn't leave it there. I think it's really neat because he goes on and he makes a contrast because he really wants to drive the stake of what this is all about deep into their hearts. He wants them to know that they need to be grounded in God's love, that they do not need to be controlled by fear. None of us should be controlled by fear. He says in a, almost with the, a twinkle in his eye and a smile on his face. This is the humor of God. Jesus, I think, kind of almost with a smile, because, come on, guys, don't live in fear. I mean, God loves you. He's a sovereign Father. Think about the sparrows for a second. If the Creator, the sovereign Creator, watches sparrows, and these sparrows are worth just a few cents in the marketplace, He knows when they fly and when they, when they move, and He knows how to care for all their patterns throughout their life. If He can care for them, don't you think as a sovereign Creator, a sovereign Father will care more for you? Come on, guys! Compare yourself to sparrows for a second. Don't fear. It's really the opposite, I think, of what most people think. You ever been with people and they kind of say, you know, here's, here's the truth about God. You, know, you can pray about God, but God's really concerned about the big things. God's really concerned about your big choices in life. You know, little ones are not too concerned about that doesn't seem to be at all what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is saying, God the Father is so sovereign and so intimate and in involved in your life that when you, in this respectful place of humility, open your heart up to God and say, God, here I am, here I am, is all I am before you, and I offer myself to you. I open my heart, knowing that I don't deserve your love, but because you, through the cross of Jesus, made your love so clear, I just ask that you would begin to work into my life and my heart. And He says, Guess what? I will. Now believe me, I'll be the first to admit, folks, it is so easy when my circumstances go a different direction and head south, it is so easy for me to move into fear. And when you move into fear, any of us move into fear, we put ourselves in a very vulnerable position towards the enemy. We allow ourselves to be controlled by anything but the love of God. We react now in relationship to other people or to our circumstances rather than being controlled by this love that allows the calmness that this God is in control of my life and I can act with boldness towards what I know is right and I can do what is right because the worst that can happen is it can take my life. The worst that can happen is someone who I care about might reject me or forsake me. The worst that can happen is that somehow I'll feel abandoned or I'll have loss. But I won't lose one thing. That will so secure my soul, and that's my relationship with God. And when you begin to live like that, what it does, it causes you to live in a way that as you act out of your love and your, out of your heart of love, as God begins to give you that, He begins to change you, and so in changing you, He changes the environment around you. But as we follow the Lord, As we seek to live in His love, and we come across those circumstances, sometimes we're just blindsided, or or we get going along, and like some of us, you know, I can drive now for a while, God, no problem, right? And all of a sudden the car gets out of control, or our life gets a little bit out of control, or we make some decisions that are really tough, and, and we start to begin to move into fear, and when you move into fear, you get confused. That's why I think he says in verse 32, And on to these verses, I think the word here is don't be afraid. Now he says, don't be confused. Because when you get into the place of fear, you begin to get confused and you begin to forget Who is the source of your life? You'll begin to start looking for other people to affirm you and to approve you. You'll begin to start looking for um, to try avoid being rejected and uh, uh, avoid doing what's right because you are concerned about what other people think. That's what this verse means when he says, Whoever acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before men, I will disown him before my Father in heaven. He is making a simple point here. He is saying when you begin to live your life in this confidence that God loves you, that you are more important than a couple sparrows and and you're more valuable than a couple cents... And you begin to live in this love, and you begin to root yourself in this love, you begin to understand that it does not matter what else someone thinks. If you have trouble sharing your faith, if you have trouble standing up for what you believe in other people, whether it be at work, or whether it be with your friends, or whatever it is, it's really not so much that you're not a a strong person, it's really an, an expression or evidence of the fact that you don't really believe that God's love for you is more important than theirs. You really believe that their approval, their affirmation, their eyes upon you and the way they define you is more important than the eyes of God and the way He defines you. And that's why he makes this statement. And then as he makes this statement, he says, Look, if you have trouble acknowledging me, and he makes it very clear here. There's something crystal clear that the person's future in the world to come hinges upon one's relationship and attitude toward Jesus in the present. That's very clear here. This is not some, any kind of faith matters. Any kind of, it's, a, it's, it's a relationship with Jesus because Jesus is the full expression of God. If you want to know how the Father thinks about you and what He looks at you and defines you as, look into the eyes of Jesus because every time you look in the eyes of Jesus, He will define you as the Father sees you. And that's the kind of life that opens you up to the life of God. And so he makes the statement and he says in verse 34 and 36, here's where it gets most confusing for most people. It's in your most intimate relationships. It's easiest to confuse this whole idea of where the source of your life comes from, where Where we think our life truly comes from its easiest in our most intimate and closest relationships So that's why he says in verse 34 do not suppose or be confused that I have come to bring peace at any cost to the earth I didn't come to bring peace at any cost but a sword. I actually came to divide out I came to divide out these self-centered these selfish sinful patterns that look to other people or look to other things Or look to anything else to get the source of life I came to take away these things that you learned when you were a child you learned how to navigate through life, through your own strength. And as you began to do that, you became successful maybe in some ways, trying to get love and, and get affirmation. And maybe you became good in a certain sport or a certain work, or, or you somehow developed a relationship where you felt close. These things were drawing light. But after a time, these strategies, will anyone who seeks to live in them will find that they won't provide the life that they want. And these things that were one time successful pathways to freedom but are now prisons. And he says, I have to come with a sword. I have to divide that out. That's why he says very clearly here, a man against his father, a daughter against her mother. It's not that he doesn't like those relationships. He says in these most intimate relationships, if you're going to follow after Jesus with all your heart so that truth begins to grab hold of your life, you're going to live in such a way that the source of your life is from God. His eyes define you alone. And as you walk in life, it may yet sometimes mean that this definition and this place of value, this place of affirmation that you were getting life from, whether it be in your marriage, whether it be with your father or mother, whether it be with a daughter or your children, doesn't matter. At times, Jesus with a sword cuts it through so that you will wholly grow in him. So he says a daughter-in-law against a mother-in-law. A man's enemy will be the members of his own household. And the idea that Jesus brought life... Where it's just tranquility and everything's peaceful and joyful now that i got Jesus. The life that says, so oh, I go to church and I give some money and I go to a Sunday school class. I'm in a small group. or I'm doing all these right things isn't really the whole life. They're just apparatuses. They're just vehicles to help give you relationship with God. But the real critical thing is this. Are you in relationship with God? So that He is beginning to infuse His heart into your heart. And bringing about the kind of change that changes you that begins to work on your patterns of anger, or begins to work on your your patterns of self-pity, or in some cases, a spouse needs to learn to stand up for what's true and openly say to their husband, you know, this is the way it is, and this is what I see, even though you're afraid to tell them those things. And maybe you need the right relationship and a counseling. I don't care. It's that kind of life that brings about transformation. That is what it means to follow Jesus. And the truth will get down to the core strategies that we seek to protect ourselves with. And they cut us off from seeking to find a life in any source but God. So that if you look at 37 to 38, it just goes to follow. Jesus is saying, don't live in fear. God really loves you. He's going to take care of you. He will provide for you. When you do get in fear, be aware, be aware. you're going to get confused. So don't be confused. The source of your life isn't in what you do, in anything else. It's in me alone. And he says this Anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. He's not making the statement that you, know, you need to hate the people that are closest to you. He's saying you need to prefer more the truth of God and following Jesus than you need the affirmation and the approval and the definition of other people's eyes on you. Folks, this is the gospel. This is the gospel. One of the most difficult times in my life, there was a time, and God's been doing this, this is my lifelong struggle to walk in the gospel. It should be all of ours. I remember one time, I was in a fight with my wife, and uh, it was like a two-month fight. Anyone ever had that? Oh, pastors aren't supposed to have that. Yeah, you know, we do. And it was all around What was what came clear to me, I was walking to the mailbox after we had a rather heated discussion, as we call it, discussions to my kids. But anyway, um, and I remember standing at the mailbox and I remember thinking to myself as I was talking with God, I'm trying to get her to see me in a good light. I'm I'm trying to get her and I, I was going, it really doesn't matter what my wife thinks in one sense. What really matters is how God sees me. And if God sees me, and if you, if you let God see you the way you are, He will so ground you in His love that you can begin to see your selfishness. And as you begin to see that, a lot of things sometimes, like my wife was saying, those are really true things. I just couldn't hear them because I so needed to be defined. And, and God began to work in my heart. And I remember that, that mailbox experience was a life-changing experience for me. It unhooked us from a fight, from my trying to get her to see me in a certain light. Because I began to start saying, you know, God, the only light that really matters is the light that comes from your eyes. And beginning to do that allowed for people to speak into my life and say, you know what, you got a problem here. And all of a sudden I go, man, my wife's been saying that. And I could hear it because my value was no longer determined by what someone close to me thought. That's what he's saying here. He says, you know, if you're so bound up trying to get the love of this person, whether it be your father or your mother, which is usually where a lot of people are still all their life. There are men who... Go to their grave, seeking their father's approval. I mean, it's sad. There are some of you here who are still in this place, where you're seeking a parent's approval. And God wants to liberate you from it. He wants to cut that off and free it. He came with a sword. Not that you might have peace at any cost, and you could just kind of go on living. He came to say, that's not what's most important. There's some of you, he says, we're more concerned about your kids and all your kids are looking like because your kids are a reflection of you and he's gonna cut it off. Because he says whoever finds his life will lose it and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. The gospel of Jesus goes to the core of our being, to the core of our relationships with others. It calls us to find our life only in God as the only true source and only God can affirm and approve and value and love you so that you don't have to live in fear, that you don't have to be confused any longer so that you can move to a place where you don't have to forget that all this is going to be rewarded. That's what he goes on to say. All of this will be rewarded. Don't forget, God will reward you. He who receives you, receives me. And he who receives me, receives the one who sent me. This whole verse from 40 to 42 is the greater to the lesser. Anyone who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. Anyone who receives a righteous man because he is a righteous man will receive a righteous man's reward. And anyone who gives even a cup of cold water like a servant to one of these little ones, because he is my follower, I tell you the truth, he will certainly not lose his reward. Think about it. The people who allowed Jesus into their life, some of them had miracles that changed their life. Imagine the stories they were able to tell, the reward they got because they opened their heart to Jesus. Imagine the reward that happens in a church. When they, when they come to the places of God, you know what, we're, we're, it's not about prophets. It's about the fact that your word, prophet means that you speak for the word. Imagine the church that allows for God's word to be spoken forth. Not, not that it's the Bible, but it's the word of God for the moment. Do you imagine the reward when a person follows that. Imagine the reward when you think of a righteous person who is right, filled with integrity, and filled with love comes into your life and the difference they can make. I went on Thursday night, I'm in this funeral for this man that I loved, and I didn't have the kind of contact with him. I wish I did afterwards, but I find out here is this man, godly man, who um, never felt like he was much of anything, but he, he was vulnerable and he opened his heart to a bunch of students. And I find out from someone in his family that he had these prayer lists and on his prayer list was my name every Friday, every Friday. Because I received him into my life, I, I got the reward of a righteous man praying for me. Following Jesus comes to these basic instructions and truths. Don't forget you'll be rewarded. Don't get confused where your source of life is. It's from God. And don't ever ever don't be afraid you don't need to live in fear you are in god's hands right now his eye is on you a good friend of mine gave the funeral message on thursday night and he shared a story at one point about god's watchful care he was sharing about when his kids were younger he had two girls and they were a couple years apart they went to a hotel his wife had to go to do something and she said now you take care of the kids watch them he said, yeah, I'm going to take them swimming. And so he said, make sure they understand about the swimming. So he sat when she had left and she shared, he shared with the girls. Now I want you to know something. If you are, you know, if you're in the water or around the water, you can only go in if dad's there so dad can watch you and care for you. But, you know, if you jump in the water and you're not there, you can drown. And he explained what drowning and, you know, you could drown. And so they go down to the water and they're jumping in his arms and he's putting them back up and she jumps in and the oldest one jumps in and the little one moves down a little bit further jumps in. Too far out of his reach. He's got the other one in his hand. And she's going down and she's flailing. He puts the older one up and tells her to stay. Goes over, grabs the other one, pulls her out of the water. And she's crying. And she goes, Daddy, Daddy, I drowned, I drowned. And he goes, Mal, Mal, you didn't drown. I saw you the whole time. My eye was on you the whole time. I was watching over you the whole time. Remember that. And one other thing I want you to remember. Don't tell mommy about this. (laughs) God's eye is on us. And it's a very human thing to live in fear and get confused and forget. But I'm going to challenge you to live today and the next day in the foundational reality that His eye is on you and you do not need to fear. You can live clearly with a sense of the source of life coming from him so you can live in his reward.